0: The following podcast is an Embassy Row production.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Scissoring Isn't a Thing.
2: I am Darren Carp. And I'm Liz Cully. What does your sweatshirt say, Darren?
1: If it's gonna it's gonna sound bad, but it says we're all gonna die. Oh. And then it has a big heart around the earth. So it's supposed to be ironic. It's from a, a company called online ceramics and they do a lot of the grateful dead merch. Um, and I know about them. I actually learned. You've talked
2: about them before.
1: Yes. I wear that, uh, for our 10 year anniversary for watch what happens live. Andy got us all like these custom tie dye hoodies from online ceramics and they made them for us. And they have a lot of like cool. If you go on their website, it almost looks like you're like being hacked. Like it doesn't look like a normal consumer facing website. So it's interesting. Like if you go on it, it's like, am I shopping on this thing? But anyway, they have great, uh, it's supposed to be ironic and not sad, but I need a little bit of that today. Cause I'm a little run down. Um, Liz, cause I got my second vax and kicked my butt a little bit, uh, in, in New York city. So yeah. So thank well, you for being patient. I got my patient. first
2: shot. I got my first shot. So I'm half on my way. I'm pretty excited about it. I
1: mean, you had a kind of a terrible
2: round of
1: first shot at first, and then your (laughs) second attempt to get the first shot was successful.
2: It was. I showed up to a site that wasn't set up, which is insane, last week. And then I drove to a lovely CVS, and it was great. I, I started to get nervous about it. But listen, you know, so many people have the opportunity to get them This is so exciting.
1: Yes. Well, and just this week, uh, Cuomo, at least in New York City, announced, and I think for you guys, it's going to be, I want to say like April 15th, but at least for this week in New York City, they're opening it up to everyone older, older, over 30, excuse me. So uh, that was pretty good because we were kind of waiting on the news for there. So hopefully, you know, herd immunity will happen uh, quicker than we actually thought. So there, there you go. There's my update for you.
2: Fingers crossed. Well- How about we just jump into the queue this week? Let's
1: do it. Let's do it. Hey, guys, we want to welcome you to the queue where we share some highlights and happenings within the LGBTQ plus and ally community.
2: And don't be shy, listeners. We want to hear from you, too. If you've got the scoop or have someone you want us to shout out, feel free to shoot us a DM at S.I.A.T. podcast on Instagram or Twitter.
1: Okay, so my cue, Liz, uh, that I'm bringing to you is some good news coming out of New York. Listen, you know that I have been a big fan of New York over LA, but Mama knows that I'm a 420 gal. New York finally announced plans to legalize marijuana here, which I think will gravely help not only. Woo-hoo! How um, excited are you? I mean, I'm stoked for it. I mean, you know, it's funny because when you look at it, it's like. Great. Now we're just going to be more expensive, you know, in a lot of ways, because now it's like okay, not black market. Now we got to pay taxes, but I think it's going to help the city in general. I also think it's going to help a lot of our arrest rates and crime rates because yeah. a lot of those things happen uh, from racist policies. So I, I personally want to end the drug war. I've talked about this on here, but and it's funny because our next guests uh, have a lot to do in the marijuana field and have helped yes. a lot of people. My question for you though is, when I came out, when I was nineteen. Okay. I never smoked weed ever. I didn't start smoking weed until I was like 22, way until I was well onto my graduation, like a year into the workforce. But it was actually became a bonding thing that I could do with like my parents, you know, because my parents were, 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 were used to smoke pot and everything like that. And I, I often wonder if weed was legal in the same way with the same rules that alcohol is legal. I mm-hmm. wonder if that would help a lot of people Come out and like be used as a lubricant if they're not. And the reason that I say that is because I think it would have helped me a little bit if if I could have gotten my dad high or something with me, even though I had a pretty good experience. But Dan Savage often talks about this on his podcast how this how weed is sort of this great lubricator, if you will, a healthier lubricator than alcohol. And how sometimes whether you're nervous to have sex with the opposite with with the same sex for the first time or you're trying something new, weed is a really good way to kind of like let your uh, inhibitions. What if you get
2: paranoid?
1: I mean, it's possible, right? I mean, listen, everything, right. You could get too drunk. You could get to this. I just think, sure, sure, sure. Obviously the baseline here, the baseline question is like reasonable, responsible use of the drug. I'm not talking about like rip and bong rips, but I'm just saying like, if we didn't have the, the that, I think the stigma is kind of dying out about it. I wonder if it would actually help people more.
2: (laughs) Maybe. I mean, listen, I think it's so funny. I was talking to my mom yesterday and she has a really terrible back and she's been just Mm. like, she's going in for another surgery. And it's been like all of these back surgeries over and over and over again. And I finally was like, I think you should just regularly use cannabis. Like if you really have a hard time sleeping and you're in that much pain, even CBD
1: might help her back. As opposed to Oh, yeah, to just I mean, trust mind. me, you know yeah.
2: me, I've been sending her the CBD for oh, forever. Yeah, I'm sure, but, yeah. But when you're in like super, super, super pain, it does help to have kind of a high ratio of CBD to your point, and then THC, just that combination tends to work, in my yeah. experience, pretty well. And I think even the, and my parents aren't, you know, my parents are very conservative, so, and they didn't smoke weed ever. So even having that conversation with her about ingestibles is so Wait, have progressive. Have they never I mean, smoked weed? Have they never smoked My mom any? said she smoked weed once in Egypt and she was out of her mind. That's what she says. My dad has never smoked anything in his life. Not and even no a interest
1: And no interest.
2: No, my dad would never. My mom is like, eh. She said she felt weird and like wanted to eat. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, <laughs> fair.
1: <laughs> like that's the worst thing ever. I mean, every drunk person well, could say the same thing. Would you ever, do you ever get high in front of your parents?
2: I had, I mean, I was high for... 10 plus year. I mean, I smoked so much. I was high all the time back in high school and college. I mean, I smoked from morning to night. I was a wake up in the morning, take a bong rip kind of gal. right? And then I took about nine years of no. I didn't smoke all during my twenties at all. I stopped completely cold Turkey. Mm. And then why? For
1: what reason? Was there a reason?
2: I was singing on tour at the time I was singing and my throat, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And then Now, well, the reason why I ask you about the paranoia is I just feel like cannabis is so strong, can be so strong these days that I get like so high, which is why for our guests that are coming on, I love their product because it's low dose. You know what I mean? Yes, so. and, it,
1: and it and it and it keeps it consistently, and 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 these guys a can if you don't know the the company C A N N obviously a play on words of like the can drinks, but also cannabis. It really is nice to kind of get this low dose without having any of the hangover effects, which I think that they are kind of allowing. But they're
2: promoting is- well, and here's my cue: is that Ellen went on her show and talked about can. Really, dude? I don't know. Ellen why. DeGeneres. I don't know went why I think Ellen show- like,
1: would never smoke pot. I don't know why. Well, I, she's I don't not know smoking she, it, she's drinking it, maybe. But like, I don't
2: so she claims mind. it was so funny. Luke, one of the founders who you guys will be introduced to in just a couple of minutes, he put on his Instagram, he goes, is this the most expensive cameo that you can buy? Because it was literally Ellen in her opening monologue, talking about how Chelsea Handler told her about can she didn't want to drink. So she drank one and she was like, Kind of, you know, said that she had a great time with it, but made the joke that like, you know, she was taking her top off like Chelsea Handler. But yeah, yeah, yeah. What I guess my cue to your kind of compliment to yours about, you know, the new laws in New York is that Mm -hmm. like did we ever think Ellen DeGeneres was going to talk about her consuming cannabis on her talk show? Cause like, I did not.
1: That, And I think that just goes to show the progress of the world. Like in general, I think it's easy to see all like the shitty things that are happening around us, but I also think it's important to kind of take a step back and be like, here's this talk show host who by any means like has to probably be as PC as possible. And I'm not just talking about with, like the language, but like Probably can't have an alcoholic, probably have an alcoholic beverage because she doesn't want, you know, it's a very family oriented show. Ad revenue is very big right now. And here we are in, in where this person is talking about a drug that is not alcohol or cigarettes. It's actually kind of better than both on a fucking talk show to like our parents. Like the world is getting better with this stuff. I think that's fantastic. I think it's a good sign that those things are happening. And, you know, congrats to the can guys because they fucking deserve it.
2: They totally deserve it. And what's amazing about what we talked about with them is just kind of like breaking down the barriers with LGBTQ plus founders in the cannabis space, how they have a board of investors that is incredibly diverse, not only from gender to race, but to orientation, kind of how they met. They're just really, really thoughtful, interesting guys. And I, I loved this episode. I know you eventually tried can. You know, I love can.
1: I love it. Great, great flavors. I mean, and you I usually hate those like uh, pre-flavored sodas. Like I'm not a big white claw person. I don't like it. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. It just had the most like refreshing really flavoring good. ever. Yes. Very, very good. Their combos are awesome. Plus it doesn't, it doesn't hurt that there's THC in it. It doesn't hurt me
2: doesn't all. hurt <laughs> doesn't hurt well i hope you guys enjoy this episode and bye can and buy can
1: all right liz
2: karen it's another day this
1: is your chance before we even started this recording you already got a discount code from these guys so you're already so. hustling before we even hit play on this fucking record okay notice me <laughs> not doing that being the biggest stoner in this group for sure and just being a podcast host, that's all I'm saying,
2: Liz. Well, Darren, I would say you need to get your shit together.
1: Step up my game.
2: I'm really excited to have these two gentlemen on the show. Definitely heard a lot about them through my circle of friends, but also was very yeah. lucky to be gifted their product. And now I'm obsessed. And it's really taking my wellness journey to the next level. Stop we bragging. Have Stop bragging. Jake Bullock and Luke Anderson, who are the co-founders of can, which is my new favorite drink of all time. I'm gonna and read with both- two ends. Two ends. I'm gonna read both of their respective bios here. Luke's true passion for the beverage space started to shine during his time at Stanford University. In between classes, Luke crafted smoothies as a manager of the campus Jama Juice. Oh God, we need to get into that. Many yeah. Jama, I'm from San Francisco, so I had many Jama Juice moments in my life. Luke would routinely create off. The menu drinks, pairing juices and frozen fruit. Ooh, love it. After receiving his MBA from Stanford, he returned to consumer packaging goods for all of those know CPG, a world I live in a lot of, and was at the Bain & Company, specializing in helping large and complex organizations behave more like startups. Jake's first entry into the cannabis industry came also while he was at Stanford Graduate School of Business. He made a number of venture investments in the space. Very smart, Shank. very smart. And spent a summer working with Bestio. Ooh, you know about that, Darren. I you love Besito, it's about- yeah. Besito. Sorry, Besito, so there so, you go. We're gonna get
1: into it, continue, okay? I'm so okay. excited. I'm a so excited. A premium LA okay.
2: cannabis brand where he learned the ropes of the growing industry. Oh my God, we're all such so integrated here. He also served as the co president of the Cannabis Business Club at Stanford. Ooh, I would have loved to sit in on one of those meetings. It was in this environment that he had the idea behind Can. Okay, I love it. That same year, Jake recruited his old friend Luke, and Can made its debut. Luke was a former college colleague who had never stepped foot into a dispensary before, but Jake knew that with Luke's experience in CPG products, he would be the key to bringing the product to life. The two worked together to design a brand and to formulate delicious social beverages that were geared towards the cannabis curious, like myself, who are looking for an alcohol, alternative, or maybe, like me, they just completed 35 days of dry January. Welcome to Scissoring Isn't a Thing, both of you. Woo!
1: goes yeah. wild! Woo!
0: Amazing. It's a
2: lot of bio, guys.
0: And thank wow. you guys
1: for creating a beverage like this. And we're going to get into it. But my God, like I'm a huge donor, huge 420 proponent, have been for quite some time. And I always say to my friends who were like, get, like still had that stigma about weed, certainly like five years ago, like really before the legalization came into play, it was like, you know, they'd be like, how could you smoke weed? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, you are literally poisoning yourself every night, throwing up getting hung over and then volunteering to do it again. And I'm the crazy one. I don't think so. So this was a long journey. I'm just glad can, people can socially drink now while getting high as opposed to alcohol. Was that sort of your basis for it? Because alcohol to me seems like even though I drink the stupidest mistake every single time, it's like we're poisoning ourselves here. Totally.
0: It's it's crazy. We've I think we've even said this on our social at one point, like literally, at, at least it's not poison, right? We have that. Right. For us. <laughs> right um but but no it, that's exactly it it's like you, both Luke and i are getting older our hangovers were getting worse um mm-hmm. and it wasn't sustainable and it, like you say it's not that we don't drink alcohol anymore um but this gives us another option like isn't that what right. it's all about like let's let's give us more choices so we can decide what like wellness looks like for us in any given moment and that may be different right depending on if it's dry january and you want to spend you know 30 days not drinking alcohol at all that's amazing And then have like a week of margaritas in February. That's also great. Right. Uh, But now we have the choice and it it comes with an actual social buzz, not like, um, you know, we've always had the ability to drink sparkling water or like something with caffeine in it. And so I think part of this was our frustration, with alcohol, part of this was our frustration with alcohol alternatives. And part of it was our frustration with cannabis products that like, just didn't connect. Like I'm not going to eat a gummy bear, like the head of
1: 45 minutes, like have a cool meeting. It's like, you're waiting around for too long. Right.
2: Well, and also as a, as somebody that's been using the product, what I like about it is that to your, both of your point, gummies, a lot of them are really dosed out now. I think, you know, the cannabis industry has come a long way since I may or may not allegedly have been slanging eighths back in California, back when it was illegal or non-illegal. It's a lot different now. But I think the way that you guys formulated the product, and I'd like to get into that a little bit, was that it really isn't, you don't feel like, I'm so high, I'm so crazy. So kind of in the same vein of alcohol, where it's, quote, low-dosed, you guys really created a product that feels... Approachable, I guess you could say, where you can have one can and feel okay.
3: Right. sessionable is used a lot in the alcohol industry to describe drinks that you can have like two, three, or four of and not feel overwhelmed. Like what's crazy about people who complain that our product is way low dose and and I'm sorry, Darren, I know you you kind of just did. Um, <laughs> it is you know like nobody is having one white claw at a party and then wandering right. around going. I'm not drunk like this doesn't work. Like, But no, you don't get drunk <laughs> off one white guy. You get like a tiny bit of a buzz and then you have right. a second one and then you get tipsy and then a third. And And there's this whole thing we're used to because alcohol is the dominant thing we drink socially that allows us to see it on a spectrum. And then, you know, you get to your 12th vodka soda and you're throwing up. And that's like socially acceptable for some reason. <laughs> it, it's, it's crazy that it's taken this long. And I give Jake like full credit for, he's been talking about this idea of a microdose THC beverage for seven years. And I was literally telling him that I thought it was the dumbest thing, like pounding the 11th and 12th vodka sodas and throwing up the next day, going to like meetings with doctors asking, how many alcoholic beverages do you drink in a week? And, and I'm like, very honest, I'll say, you know, 25 to 30 and they're like, Whoa. And they like hand me a pamphlet for uh, alcoholism. And I'm like, no, no, no. But like I drink none from Monday through Friday and then Friday night I'll have 11 and then Saturday I'll have nine and Sunday I'll have four. And they're like taking the pamphlet back, but being like, you know, you might want to just like drink less than that by a lot. Right. And until we brought can to life, that was kind of the norm. And I was like, well, all my friends are doing the same thing. They're just lying to their doctors. And now Jake and I both drink half as much as we used to. And we feel a hell of a lot better. The irony is not lost on us that like we are, you know, leaning on another drug to get one drugs problem in check, but it's, it's a better way of living and it's healthier. And it's just as much fun.
1: Right. You're not arguing that, uh, you know, not drinking your, like, no one's saying that, like, you drink this product, it's better than not drinking anything at all. Like, no, even, even a pothead like me would be like, yeah, if the choice is maybe weed or abstinence of any type of drug, sure, abstinence is the best. It's just that, like, life's too short to not have (laughs) one vice or two. What I like about your product, and then we're going to take it back about you guys individually, is that you've also created this need where, at least for me, I'm not, I don't love drinking, but I will do it socially. I don't drink on my own. But if Liz was coming over and I was like, let's have a drink. If she was like, sure, I'll have a vodka soda. I would drink too. But when I'm at a party and I don't really feel like drinking because I'm coming hungover, I feel this pressure to do it, or at least have something in my hand. Mm-hmm. It gives you that nursing ability. And so you have kind of created where it's like, I get the best of both worlds. I can quote unquote drink, nurse something in my hand without having any of the negative side effects for it, which is. Something that people don't really think about. I'm like, why is there so much pressure? Because it's
0: every musician that he meets, by the way.
1: There just shouldn't be that. And, and, you know, like, if someone doesn't want (laughs) to smoke weed at a party, I'm not like, oh, like, who the fuck are you? But with drinking, there is that stigma. And frankly, it's fucking annoying. So I appreciate you guys uh, solving that issue for all of us. What I want to do now is kind of take it back to the two of you. Uh, We ask all of our guests how they identify, usually, uh, you know, gender, sex-wise, but also sexuality-wise. Some people have a variance of answers. And I was wondering if you two would uh, mind answering that for both of us, Luke, you can go first.
3: Yeah, they are laughing because the story of our friendship is like Jake's listened to me rant about the sexuality spectrum while completely blackout drunk, like for years. Um, <laughs> I, you know, my sexuality is wherever the wind blows it. Since Janelle Monet has made pansexuality <laughs> more accessible. Yeah. And I had the good fortune of meeting her and like crying into her arms because her music like helped make me more comfortable with explaining my sexuality. I think that's every musician that he meets, by the way. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, not just Chanel Monet. it's everybody. Yeah, right, he's a sap, try a
3: lot. right? No, no, I think pansexuality is probably the best way for me to describe my sexuality. Like I would probably get horny for a potato with a robot brain or whatever. It, it's Sick. it's um. I almost got married to a woman in my mid twenties. Um, I'm married to a man right now. It's very fluid. I think that it's very limiting when we think about our sexuality in such black and white terms. And there are so many people I know that are straight that wish they could share part of their queerness with the world, but they don't want to sacrifice the in group out group part of it. And on the, the gay side of things, like, it's just as bad. People are like, "Oh, hun, you'll you'll get all the way over here eventually." And yeah. I'm like, "No, I'm like a you know a six or a four on the Kinsey scale." Or no, sorry, that's a one to six. I'm I'm like a two to a four on the Kinsey scale, depending on the season. You know, it is what it is.
2: That was really hot. Pan- <laughs> Liz <laughs> identifies
1: as a bisexual. You should know, but like I went, Liz, <laughs> and Liz has heard this often. It's like, yeah, and I guess Pan can probably be considered this. Do you ever get it's like. Oh this is the starter pack for you being gay. Like you just haven't really converted all the way over. Like this is your baby step into being gay. And I'm like, "Nope, it's yeah. just a different step. Liz just likes both." No, that,
3: that's it. <laughs> it's it's um, you know, you're not like 50% gay or 50% straight. You're 100% bi. No. But what's tough about identifying as bi is it's so validating for a woman who still has heterosexual relationships. It's revered in society to be a bisexual female, but it is, you, you are like a joke to society. If you're a bisexual male, even still today. And so what I like about pansexuality is it it is such a confusing term for people that it allows a space for you to feel like you're too confusing for someone to criticize your, your feelings. And so if I were a woman, I think I would identify as bisexual, but when I identified as bisexual as a man, I had a bunch of catty gays at HBS tell me that I was like, you know, Always. Uh-huh. less than.
1: Yeah. Women have a lot more room to be, I think, a little bit more experimental in their sexuality and what we call each other in, in a lot of ways. Uh, Jake, what about you? How would you answer that question?
0: Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm annoyed Luke went first because he is like a much more, a much more well thought out and, and deep answerer. <laughs> But no, I mean, I, I like that conversation resonates with me entirely. Like, I think part of I sort of did a very classic. I came out in, in my mid 20s uh, as gay, but sort of like started bisexual. But like it depended on who I was talking to. Right. Like it was sort of like sure. sort of like straight dude. I would probably be like, yeah, like I'm bisexual. Like I like occasionally hook up with dudes. And then like I've like grown through that to like land somewhere that I think I feel much more comfortable saying that I'm gay now than maybe I did 10 years ago, but like, I also feel like pressure by that. And, And like Luke said, I think one of the hardest things for me in my like bisexual phase, which I sort of think may come back at some point was that you spend all this time doing like heavy lifting around your identity and getting to the point where you're like, I'm comfortable enough to like announce this to the world, or at least to like people that I care about. Right. And then you have this whole set of, of the affinity group of, of the community that you're, you're meant to be sort of joining. Right. And, and they're like, oh, I know exactly what you are. Let me show you. And it's like, hold on, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what I am. Like, I think I actually have a pretty good idea. And, and there's something like particularly nefarious about being marginalized by the group that's meant to sort of, accept you on the periphery. And so, I mean, we experienced this a ton in in sort of corporate life. Luke and I started the same day at Bannon Company. And, you know, as far as companies go, it's one of the best places to work for for queer people, but you still felt it and you still saw this, like, you know, even in the like LGBT pull out groups that they would do in the retreats, there was this like really intense sort of overwhelming sense of like, you are on a path, like, I know where, I know who you are, like, let me explain your identity to you. And part of why I think we were able to start this company was was our friendship and having gone through that, but also the way in which we used alcohol to sort of very poorly navigate those identity issues. And I think when we look back, we sort of are able to laugh about it now, but it was not healthy. And I think that has been part of why we've been in a good spot to do this now is, is we've realized that like, what about something you could drink that makes you more yourself? Right. Not sort of trying to hide or put on some other, some mask.
1: I just have a follow-up to that, which is my main topic. And Liz, I know we have some basic questions to get through, but Dan Savage, who I listen to on Savage Lovecast, who's like a Goliath to me in the sex industry, whether or not I agree with him politically, we could... But like sex advice, he's the fucking best in my opinion. And, you know, he talks about as a suggestion using weed as sort of this disinhibitor. If you're scared to try something sexually or you're going on a date and how weed can really break down those barriers in a way that alcohol does it to this level that you can't control it. Right. Like weeds to let you be yourself. And do you think to your point on your experience that can and slash cannabis as a whole thing has the same properties to sort of do that, and maybe m- makes people a little bit more comfortable in opening up. Like, do you see can kind of changing that way that and helping people come out of their sexuality a little bit more, or is it not as broad as that?
0: We, so we spend a ton of time thinking about this exact thing because one of the hardest things to do with this product is explain what it's like to to drink it and what it feels like and what it does. And and you know, in, in marketing, you always create your enemy, and so we got our enemy; it's alcohol. And so we try to think like, compared to alcohol, like what is what does can do that's different? Or how do you describe that to somebody? It's really, really hard because everyone experiences a little bit differently and they don't always use the same words to describe even if they maybe are experiencing it in a similar way, they may may choose to describe it differently. And so we think a lot about like those years in our twenties when we use alcohol to sort of either escape or to change the way that we would interact or behave, not in a way that was more like us, but in a way that was more like everyone else. So like if I'm, when I'm drinking alcohol, I can, I can use that to sort of, one is a signal that like, we're not going to hold each other as accountable for our actions, which is a ridiculous thing about alcohol, um, but right. happens all the time when people drink and two, I'm going to kind of converge to what's happening. And like that, those sources of sort of like influence in in a social setting, you know, you can identify and be more able to either mimic or sort of like dovetail with on alcohol where cannabis, I think like for me, at least like I'm very introverted. And so it calms the inside of me down in a way that then I can engage on my own terms. Like it lets me be sort of the version of me that I want to show through, not sort of trying to match or mimic something else that's happening or someone that, that has more influence. A lot of people talk about cannabis as being like more chill and we fight that a bit because chill is, is not necessarily not social. It's not necessarily not uplifting, right? It can, it can be a good thing. It can be actually the, what, what you need to engage on your own terms. And so we think a lot about like, how does this product make you be more of yourself or feel comfortable showing more of yourself? We think it does, but it's harder to describe. And, and we're still learning, honestly, as, as more people try this and tell us their stories.
3: Right.
2: It's interesting that you, you say it that way. Somebody recently asked me how I felt. They're like, well, what's the difference, you know, when you drink one of those? And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you don't have like the edible hangover. You don't have any hangover at all. But I kind of described it. I was like, and and I've only drank one at a time, which is two milligrams of THC combined with four milligrams of CBD, which I've loved CBD when used correctly, typically with a little bit of THC. Yeah. Uh, but I... Oh yeah, we can, no one I don't think is coming to this podcast to get really nerdy about like cannabinoids, but I'm, Darren and I are your girls and we will definitely take you two out to dinner when it's safe. Um, or, or have more zooms if you'd like, and we can talk all about this, but we're
1: going to get it boys. We're going to get it. just going to like douse
2: my body in CBD. Um, but I, you know, I really just felt pleasant. I don't know how else to describe it. I just felt like I, I paint by numbers and I had my can and I'm like, I feel nice. I feel great. I didn't have this like craving, you know, when you start drinking, you mentioned like 11 drinks, like you don't keep going and going. I was really present and checking in with myself and just having a lovely time. And, you know, you spoke before about how perhaps when you were coming out or going out more in the gay community socially, there was a lot of alcohol involved. And I think, you know, it's discussed a lot about how there's a lot of alcohol abuse within the gay community. Like if you live in Los Angeles, you can go at legitimately any time of day and walk by the Abbey, which is like a tragic yet like nostalgic yet tragic place here in West Hollywood. And there will always be somebody at the bar. And I felt like when I moved to Los Angeles, I drank so much like these insane Sunday fun days and you're hungover and then you're anxious and you don't know who you went home with or whatever it is. Do you think as being queer in the beverage category in cannabis, there is an opportunity to perhaps talk to the more LGBTQ plus folks that are interested or open to cannabis and show them that this could be an alternative?
3: it's a huge part of our brand. I mean, it's like, like Jake said, you know, we came out together, not together. We came out at roughly the same time. Actually I was telling friends that I was queer earlier, but it took me like a year to be public about it. Jake basically did it all in one fell swoop. And I was so like envious that he had that confidence, but you know, we both know just how much we relied on the 10th vodka soda on a Friday night to cope with our queer identity crisis. And we saw how badly we navigated it. And we saw how badly all of our friends navigated it. And it's a real problem. We're lucky that we don't have a huge platform. We've got like a a fun little brand Instagram page, but there's not a ton of queer people that are listening to what we have to say, but we're very mindful about how we pick our partners, our investors. We've got some celebrity investors that are queer icons who are able to spread this message about the, you know, life affirming nature of using something like our product that like Jake said, makes you more yourself rather than using something like alcohol, which makes you more like an animalistic and disgusting version of yourself. And so people like Ruby Rose is an investor. Breezy is an investor. You know, they both have done amazing things for intersectional queer communities through their their art.
2: And we like that they're both women. I noticed that. Yeah. I was going to get to the investor list, but I like that you're bringing that up that you're yeah. utilizing queer identifying women is really awesome and women of color, which is great.
3: Yes. And we just recently, um, Gus Kenworthy came on board and he did such an amazing thing by being out for the entire athletic community at the Olympics in Sochi. And, you know, the intersectionality is so key for us because the queer community tends to have its own problems of like insular, like for like kind of groups that make people that aren't, you know, shirtless gay white men feel like they're not validated or seen. And so we're very thoughtful about who we pick to work with and and you know Ruby and Breezy are incredible and speak to people that you know Jake and I can't because right. we don't we don't know what it's like to be a queer woman of color we never will we don't know what it's like to be gender queer and there are so many people that deal with alcohol abuse because they're struggling with gender identity and and so We're not foolish enough to think that we can just sort of speak to all of them. You have to have people with authentic experience doing that uh, for us.
1: Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, I think the stigma on weed is obviously just getting or, or THC in general is just getting better and better and better and better and better. And I feel like if people aren't for legalization, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's my opinion on it. But that's been my opinion since I was a little kid. But I remember having this argument like eight years ago with a lesbian boss that I had, and we would get into politics all the time. And she would be like, what do you think is going to come first? The legalization of gay marriage or the legalization of weed? And I thought about it, you know, cause I was like, listen, I'm for fucking both. Like I'm a stoner and I'm a gay girl. And I believe that you own your body. You own your right. Like you get to do whatever the fuck you want to do. That's marriage. That's whatever you want to ingest. But I remember being like really taken aback. Cause I was like, I'm not sure what." what America is ready for first. And I'm not sure that, you know, both kind of come with their uh, negatives and their pros. I'm wondering for you, do you guys see a strong correlation between people's Maybe archaic view of THC and also maybe their archaic view of homosexuality. Like, do you find that there's a solid line up there and embracing those stigmas?
0: Yeah. It's Uh, yeah. It's funny you ask that because I use this example all of the time in trying to explain, like often to investors or people that are asking questions about cannabis regulatory environment and how it's going to change. I use gay marriage because Gallup does all this amazing polling and they've been doing it for like decades. And so you can look back and you can see, you know, basically support uh, and approve and disapprove across cannabis legalization, gay marriage, all sorts of of, of sort of important societal issues. And the gay marriage and the cannabis legalization charts look very similar in that they're an X. They inflect and they just keep going. There's no like even abortion, right? Like goes like this over time. And, And so if you think about like what does that actually mean, it means that like there's a shift, something is changing and they're kind of changing together. And, you know, there's a cynical view of this as like, sort of as demographics change, like old people die. But I think there's also like a a more uplifting view, which is that like, they weren't really that entrenched in the first place. Like the hate against cannabis or the hate against gays, like it wasn't like a strong, emotionally driven thing in a large part of the society. It was sort of popular in part of the society that that's what put it over the edge initially, right? For a period of decades. But as that a away, like it became really clear that like, this is obvious, like we're just going up, we're going to 80, like this is going to 80. Cannabis is going to 80. Gay marriage is going to 80. Like I, you can just see it in the chart. I'm like, that's kind of cool. Now you can also say like, are there other things that have changed? There's obviously a lot of economic issues behind cannabis guys like me and Luke came out to our right like and there's there's something about like when white men are coming out to their white fathers that have power like things change so i think there's there's other explanations for this but i like to think that maybe these things are moving together because they're obvious kind of like you say darren like like if you're not for this then like what the fuck is wrong with you
1: well and certainly for like you know when you talk to other gay people or in the queer community, it's like, well, what changed? And I'm like, well, more people came out and they realized that their second cousin who wasn't fucking murdering people on the street, who was gay, you know, like maybe being gay isn't so bad. And I just remember that stigma, especially in New York city, which, Let's be frank, it's not legal here, but I smell more weed than I do garbage or urine, which if you've ever been to New York City is a very strong smell. And I am an open weed user. And once vaping became a thing and they could see these like Wall Street execs, you know, at lunchtime hitting a toke or two, all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, maybe you're not a lazy piece of shit for smoking weed. Maybe it's not so bad. And so I feel like the more people who came out as marijuana users and or gay it helped the whole thing and so maybe that's why they're together you know what i mean totally. those trends match
0: and there are gay people everywhere and there are weed smokers everywhere like everywhere. These crazy places i mean south dakota right is legalizing right. i mean they're everywhere it's it, you know i think that's part of it too
1: yeah
2: absolutely in my limited but not so limited experience working with a lot of CBD and cannabis brands primarily in California as a consultant I'm typically one either the only woman that they're consulting with or in the conversation and particularly the only queer person in the brands that I've been working with maybe that's why we work together do you find that you've experienced any homophobia or maybe limited openness to the queer community entering the cannabis space. Cause it's really just for the listeners and you guys please chime in more than me. But from my experience in and out of the cannabis world, it's like super broy. It's super white male dominated. And if it even gets even further, it's kind of old school just because it's a lot of old past growers that were kind of living you know, on the fringe because it was illegal for so long that it, it there's a lot of archaic mentality towards it. Do you guys oh, yeah. have you felt that at all? It, but what
3: where it starts and why it's so hard for I think a lot of brands to get off the ground in cannabis and make it through their first year is you have to get funding. Like nobody is profitable yeah. in cannabis and. You better believe that I don't have like light violet hair and I'm like talking like my actual self when I'm trying to raise money. There is you something You don't
2: you d- you re-dye your hair when you're fundraising.
3: Oh no no no. I close the check and then I dye my hair uh, after. <laughs> <I got>, uh, <laughs> <it's>, uh- <laughs> he
1: makes sure it gets in his checking account first. Cash the no, check. Cash the thing, yeah. I, I
3: remember <laughs> one, our lead investor from our pre-seed round who's you know, he knew I was queer and is like so uh, amazing. You know, as soon as I dyed my hair and he was going to come for an investor meeting, I was panicking with Jake. And I was like, am I presenting myself as someone that's like mentally unfit to run a cannabis company? And Jake's like, dude, like, no, you're just presenting yourself as yourself. And and there is this like internalized fear that if you present yourself as queer or you present yourself as an other, you may not be treated the same way. And it starts with the people that are writing checks to cannabis startups are almost 100% straight, white, older men. And yep. I, you know when Jake and I make a pitch, we don't sound exactly like we do on this podcast. We're very used to covering, like you do six years of management consulting and working with clients that are not super queer friendly. Like you learn to talk like this and you make the the slide and you point at it. and And, and there's a little bit of that, that as a white male, which both Jake and I are, it's not lost on us that we have the privilege of being able to cover our queerness and be treated like a, a straight white male but this is changing there you know what happened in june as horrible as it was and you know how, as even though it was a moment like it's been happening forever the social justice movement in cannabis is getting stronger and stronger and people are understanding the value of diversity inclusion and most importantly equity and i believe that there has been a seismic shift in the cannabis industry, and it's becoming less of a straight white men's club. But what makes that change sustainable is what brands do on the inside. Jake and I are very proud. There's not a single straight white man on our executive team at the company. And that's really rare to have any startup that, you know, is a fully not straight white man uh, leadership team. And like, I love straight white men, like, you know, as problematic as they are as a group, um, it, it, this isn't like an anti thing. It's a sure. you, you need to model as an organization, how you want the industry to evolve just internally. And when we get bigger, and when people notice, then I think the industry will begin to change as well. Uh, but we, we have to we have to do it as a small part of it first.
1: I want to talk to you guys about each of your individual coming out stories, if you don't mind. If that's what you guys would consider, would would consider it. In fact, we had Karamo Brown on, who's from Queer Eye, and he doesn't like the idea of coming out. He he, it's more of a letting in, and so everyone kind of has a different view on it. But you know, for you specifically, Luke, you had sort of mentioned at least that it took you kind of a full year, you know, and that and that Jake kind of did it. He was like, here I am, you know, one fell swoop, let's get it all done. But for you, it was more of a process, and I wonder how much of you. Lowering the octave of your voice and pointing to you know pretending to be this straight hetero you know cis white male is mirrored in the fact that it took you a little bit longer to come out and do you do you do you see a mirror of that where you're like I don't want to be too gay I don't want people to automatically think because I'm bi that as a bi man that I'm gay and I'm just like not willing to admit it do you see a mirror there in all of you pretending to be something you're not and is that why it took you maybe a little bit longer than maybe Jake did.
3: Oh man, it's a really good question. I'll answer it by sort of just telling a quick chronology of my sure. seven year long coming out story. Oh um, wow. When when I was in middle school and actually some 12 year long, um uh, when I was in middle school and early high school, uh, I was made fun of a lot for uh, I had a nickname, Girly Man, at school. Cause Where I Where did you grow deep, up? I'm sorry to interrupt. Where did you, you grow Massachusetts, up? Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Okay. Public school, in Massachusetts, I was always doing like I was a gymnast and a diver. I was doing like theater and music and and everyone uh, just sort of thought that was gay and they would be not so shy about saying that to me. But I was attracted to women. I had girlfriends. I had successful like long term relationships. And and so I, I always felt like I was caught in this weird in between space. But I also knew that I was, you know, a little queer, at least a little was suppressing it. And then when I was 18, I actually had a month long kind of secret relationship with a guy, like a moody perks of being a wallflower type figure from yes, the private school. Yes, the, uh, you did. Sexy. It was, sexy. It was yeah. very, I mean, it was not sexy.
1: It was not sexy.
3: <laughs> and so I had this secret relationship with Spencer for a month. And then Spencer told like one of my mutual friends about it. And then it kind of like leaked a little bit. And I was just crushed. I was like, I lost some friends who thought I was a liar. And, and, and then I was just like, oh, I got to suppress this whole thing. And I can be a, you know, functional heterosexual man. And then throughout college, it, you know, I, I had exclusively girlfriends and I had, a, you know, I moved to Boston with my like long-term girlfriend and lived together. And we were like uh, going to get married and we were talking about having kids. And I had had this like, you know, secret month long relationship with a guy as like a distant memory in my past that I repressed, but was open to some people about it. And then, you know, I moved to San Francisco and my girlfriend and I broke up because we were really bad at doing long distance. And I was just like, so devastated that my life had fallen apart and I lost the, the woman that I loved and was like, you know what, let's just say, fuck it. And like, you know, I, I'm open to whatever, fell in love with my now husband. At that time, and just kind of like slow dripped the information, but within the context of the relationship, rather than like I am coming out as a as a gay man or a queer man, I was like coming out as I'm dating a man, and you like right. is not. And people, by and large, everyone was like, you know, this is cool, and I support you, and I love him, and I love this for you, and like I'm not, you know, not not surprised. I'm not surprised, but like you seem like you're the same person you've always been. And so that it was a really, it was a long, complicated process, but I never experienced any sort of pain or trauma. My mom is like, has been so accepting. She kind of knew I was dating the guy for a minute when I was 18. And when I came out uh, to her, she was just like, okay, cool. So we're doing this again. Love you. Love you for (laughs) it. And like, can't wait to meet him. My dad was like, a little bit taken aback. And that, that was, that was hard, but you know, he has since fully come around and everyone's just at a different level of comfort with it. And the more familiar you get, the, the more you're able to be there for people going through it. So, you know, long-winded way of saying it definitely has affected my ability to be open with people. And it has, you know, impacted my, I, I'm more likely to cover maybe than your average gay person, because I, I have a long history of code switching mm-hmm. in order to yeah. feel, feel like I belong.
1: And, and flipping that to you, Jake, like what, what made you sort of, you know, as Luke kind of described it, it was like one fell swoop type of thing. I mean, did you think along about it? Was it like, I only want to have limited, uncomfortable moments walk to, walk us through yeah. that for you.
0: Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> so important context here is like Luke and I were going through this at the same time. So what he's describing like meeting his husband, falling in love, coming out to people in the context of the relationship, like we are both working together in San Francisco, um, at this time, and so what was interesting for me is right before that I had been working in New York City in an investment bank, and you know, that was like what I wanted to do, and I had like worked really hard and got this job, and it was just like so overwhelming, um, both just the time, right? Like you're working like ninety-hour weeks, and the way people treated you, and you know, you can explain some of that based on you know the dynamics and the and the incentives and the and the, the pressures of that job, but but a lot of it was just like. You know the type of person that was attracted to that job wasn't like a, a a person that was really thinking about you know didn't value feelings or wasn't mindful of, of other people right and and so that was really really hard and so i kind of i think i, I having made it through college like you know and in, in largely sort of acting straight and, and getting away with it to to a large extent i channeled all of that into sort of work and i was really unhappy in that job And so I left to go to San Francisco, and that's when I I met Luke. And that for me was like, okay, fix the job problem. I'm going to go work for a company. It's like one of the best places to work in the world like this. How can I not be unhappy? And and I sort of started into that, that new experience. And there was still something there. Right. And at the time I wasn't fully aware of it, but looking back now, it was obvious that, that, that piece that was missing for me, like I should have been happy. I was had this great job. I was fulfilled by it. I was had great friends. Was it was sort of this, this identity crisis that I had struggled with for a very long time. And I think like Luke said, you know, there was no trauma or pain. There's a special type of, of sort of trauma that is like a thousand little cuts that build up like every single yeah. day, like every night in bed as like an, 10 year old kid, right? Like all the way through high school and you're, you're having all these really weird things happen in your life. And like, I am the type of person that tr- like internalized that as like me be something being wrong with me or me being like inadequate and e- being able to sort of meet what was happening inside me chemically, but also like how that reflected and, and how I interacted with people. And like, that is a type of trauma. Like it didn't have like one moment, but I still like now I'm even processing and dealing with it and the ways that it's changed my behavior as just like a normal, as just a person, right? I wear this mask and I'm really good at wearing a mask. And I put it on, like Luke says, when we're talking to investors, I put it on when I'm in a situation where I don't feel like I have a sort of a power up moment, right? I'm kind of like maybe down, and so I'll, I'll put that mask back on to try to, I don't know, protect myself. And so I was sort of figuring all of this out in San Francisco and, and, and became really good friends with Luke. And in some ways, I have to give him some credit for this because when I first met him, I was like, oh, wow, we're very similar. We had both had jobs before starting a banding company. And so that kind of connected us a little bit. We became friends and I found out about this relationship that he had. And I was like, "Motherfucker! Like this is not good for me in my identity, <laughs> <and> my identity <laughs> crisis. I'm not going to like also like you're
1: ruining out. this for me, Luke. Yeah. God damn it! <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: it was enough not, with it was the purple hair." Really, like, really <laughs> And so then I had to deal with that and I'm like, okay, how do I like now, now there's no space. Like if there was only a tiny bit of space for it before, it's like completely gone. And so, but I kind of observed him and it created something really important for me. And I I went to school at Duke in North Carolina. This is sort of like early, mid 2000s. The world was a very different place, right? Like Obama ran president against gay marriage. Like people sometimes forget how quickly these things change. I don't and forget
1: it, was, it. Yeah, you don't forget. It. <laughs> it
0: worse in, in North Carolina too. And so it was like a rough, I mean it was a lot of rough repression. And so being in San Francisco, seeing somebody like Luke that was like he said himself. Like he was, he didn't, you know, he was the same person he was for coming out as he was after, and I was like, oh, I get that. Like, it doesn't, you don't have to like become a different person, right? Like nothing needs to change. You can still have the same sort of pieces that you constructed into your identity, whether they're influenced or not by all of the things that were around you at the time. Um, and those social pressures doesn't matter. Like they. You, if you like them, you like them. You can choose to live the life you wanna live. And that was really important for me intellectually to get to the point where I'm like, okay, let's rip this bandit off. It helped I was in San Francisco, like, you know, there was such a convenient community there to like just okay, great. I've lived in the marina, I would like go to the castro one night, like, what is this all about? Like, it was of actually, course of course, you lived
2: a- in the marina. I'm born and raised from the city, so I'm uh, laughing.
0: I, 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 allowed me to live there for one year, and then I, I was basically forced to move by my friends. But,
2: <laughs> well, the marina is also problematic in its yeah, own, yeah, I, that's where I grew up, so I it's problematic, <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. I like running across the bridge, um, but, anyways. <laughs> uh, I had the ability in that community that allowed me to sort of do it. And and like Luke said, I mean, we were at this company, it was a great place to work. I sort of just announced it. Um, it's like, you know, let's just do this. There were still some conversations that I withheld. Like I didn't come out to my parents until I went to business school. And that was like very much me drawing a line in the sand saying, like, you are not going to go into a situation where you have the opportunity to meet a bunch of new people and maybe one of the, the few opportunities left in your life to actually like that is focused on meeting friends, making new friends you were going to show up as yourself there. Like I like made myself promise that. And in order to do that, I had to come out to my parents. And that was really tough because I had sort of constructed this narrative in my brain growing up in Colorado all these years that they were not going to approve of it. And even had friends that were like, they know something is up, they have to, like you're 25 years old or whatever, 27 years old, like it's gonna be fine. And you just, you can't, really, I like couldn't believe that. And and but I did it, I told my siblings first and then they were like, oh my God, it was so amazing they were like you have to tell mom and dad and so we told my parents and like it was crazy because it, it went amazingly well like it ended up in like everyone was crying and like big family hug my youngest brother who's eight years younger than me afterwards he was sort of like were you really nervous and i was like yes i was really nervous like you could he, like hear it in my voice um and he's like well you know we have a really good family and like those words always will stick with me i think because like i was so wrong to not realize that right like had a good family like I could have done this at 17 I could have done this at, at 21 and I just feel like really lucky that I had that even though it did take me so long because not everyone has that and I've learned that a lot as I've been you know hopefully gay over the last decade and I'm super super fortunate to have have that and to still have a family that that loves me no matter what
1: I mean, I can relate to that on so many levels and, you know, I see it sort of makes you uh verklempt as I would say in, in my community a little bit when, and I came from the same situation where I had a really good family, but I often say that it, the hardest person, sometimes, this is a thankfully kind of thing. Uh, the t- person to come out to is yourself is to yeah. admit that maybe your life isn't going to be this het, you know, whatever. And obviously starting a business is very much like that too. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a crapshoot. Like, mm-hmm. It prepares you for that. And I think maybe that, and I'm not, I'm not telling you your experience, but maybe I think for you, you didn't come out earlier because it was hard to come out to yourself. You know what I mean? Maybe it wasn't that you doubted your family, but you doubted you. And as much as you're like, oh yeah, I don't have to change when I'm gay, but the world will view you differently no matter what. You don't have to be different.
3: It's it's so spot on. And we think about this all, all the time because, you know, Jake and I both also came out as weed entrepreneurs at the same time. And that was even. Yeah. Process because <laughs> you guys, I, I like, mean, <laughs> like, you were like, you know, like a like not a crazy person. Uh, and I was like, oh, oh, you don't know me very well. Right. But, the, um, but the thing about that, and Jake and I talk about this a lot is and it goes back to Liz your earlier point on like, is there othering? Is there this anti-queer sentiment? It's mostly in our heads, even when there is anti-queer sentiment. What they're really anti is insecurity and inauthenticity. And that's a universal human thing. We repel things that feel fake and inauthentic. And there's something about someone who's nervous about their queerness that is by definition inauthentic, as challenging as it is, and as much support as they need, you're your own worst enemy. And you are projecting Feelings on other people that they will not like you or will not treat you the same way that are totally manufactured. And it's an exercise in self love that will serve you in every aspect of your life if you can just get out of your own way, stop worrying about what other people think. Because if you're worried about being liked, just try being real. That's the most likable thing about anybody is when they are fully themselves. Like, don't be concerned about hiding information, don't be concerned about you know presenting a certain way. and you know I still cover and I still do the thing. Maybe I was next gonna time say, Luke,
2: can we not have we can we do
3: blue hair. hair the
2: next keeping time you're hair. going for an investor round keeping like
3: next in for the next okay. like for yes. series A fundraising you're like i'm I'm showing up queer <laughs> as fuck <And> if <laughs> okay, I was gonna like, say if not down then you know we don't <laughs> want your money.
1: The nipple clamps are coming out with Luke. Jake, you might want to take all the business. Yep, we might want to take all the (laughs) business meetings. Oh my God, could you imagine Luke Luke
2: comes in in like leather chaps, which is very San Francisco Assless leather chaps,
3: of course, because it's Luke, (laughs) you know? Honestly, no, I would never do assless leather chaps, but I did get a COVID nipple piercing. And it is the worst thing. Can we We see it? I'm sad. I just lifted my shirt up and showed Wait, you. Wait, you did
2: show yeah. it. I didn't even see we it. You have a little. Oh, because it's so baby dainty. I it's actually like, hot.
1: My nipples just got hard looking at it. Like not even sexually am like, assume. oh my god, I'm in pain looking at yeah. it. Like, no, but
3: here's the thing: conventional wisdom would say, do not show your nipple piercing on a podcast. <laughs> and then, like, but you know, get out of your own way. Like, it's- <laughs> but we're scissoring <laughs>
2: today, so it's fine.
3: You know what yeah, I mean? We're fuck scissoring
2: it. it up. Oh God, was Stanford. It's interesting. I've spent a little bit of time on campus. I dated a guy there once who he himself was was very conservative, so it didn't last very long. Did you find Stanford Business School to be probably because you guys were a little bit older, maybe super liberal, not same? Like, was it what you expected it to be? I don't know. Ivy League schools like that, I feel like, have such an air of I don't know a little bit of conservatism, even though it's in you know Palo Alto. I don't know how did you guys find it there? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, so we could Luke and I could talk about business schools, Stanford, Harvard, and like the whole thing. We could go deep, really deep. I I I know what you're saying, and I think a lot of it is Stanford Business School is small. You have a mix of people. a, A good chunk of them are going to have come from finance and consulting. Right just because that's, you know, those are the kind of tracks that people go to business school after. There is a level of that that comes from finance. I think I almost thought about it more as, where did you, were you coming from the East Coast or were you coming from the West Coast? And that mm-hmm. seemed to have an impact. So even if you were in finance, but you, you know were in San Francisco or LA, you tended to be, you know, maybe a little bit more open. If there's something about being in finance in New York City that just like, you have to harden totally. yourself, to survive it. But what was cool is like, that helped. That was good. I wouldn't, I want those people there. Like they created such a, they added so much value to the experience because you had those like diverse perspectives. And a lot of what Stanford business school, I think, you know, tries to do, they're not as interested in preparing you to be like a a general manager of a a big, you know, fortune 500 company and, you know, do all of the sort of like change implementation that happens in, in big companies. They're more preparing you to like, be a good human being as it relates to business. And so that, that mm. comes in a lot of different ways. Like we spend a lot of time in uh, a class that's famously called touchy feely. It's interpersonal dynamics. It is literally like group therapy. You sit around with 12 people and there's no agenda. And it happens for like, five hours every week for like 10 weeks and like shit comes out. It's crazy. But you learn, like you learn so many interesting things. One, you learn how to learn about other people, which is really important. And through that process, I think you start to realize like, how many assumptions and judgments you just naturally manufacture in your brain about other people and how different our brains are. Like, it's crazy. Like, I think, I don't know what it is about what the sort of survival reward is for us. Assuming other people have brains like our own, there must be one because we all have it. And it's really, really bad. We're so different. You start learning how we're different. And I see it every day, you know, Luke and I see every day in, in our jobs, when we work with people on our team, like just starting from that baseline of like, I don't actually know what's going on in their head. I don't actually know their intentions, right? Let me figure out how to how to find that out in a way that is going to land really well um, on them. And so that they will be, feel comfortable helping me learn about them. And then those types of interactions are so important, especially in a company that's small like ours. It's growing really fast because we don't have time to sort of like dig in and have these pure parochial interests that slow us down, that, handicap us. Like we need to be open and honest. We need to be fluid. We need to understand each other and like work with what each other brings to the table. And it's, it's easy to say it's very hard to do, but what I, what I appreciate the most about Stanford now, like being in this company is, is all of those experiences and all that context to help me. I still fail at it all the time. It's really hard, but like, at least I have something to fall back on. Like, okay, I know how to approach a difficult conversation. I know how to deal with an, with someone that's like totally emotionally flooded and crying, like kind of. And so those those tools matter in business. Yeah. And we're young, we're we're new at this. Like we're learning every day, and I, hopefully that keeps happening because I love that part about this.
3: I have a different, slightly different perspective because you know if you're into Myers Briggs, like Jake is a T, I'm an F. Like I just like am constantly emoting and and quite dysregulated with when it comes to emotion. So I'm unable to really think about cerebrally what to do in business a lot. And I I went to Stanford undergrad and I was rejected from Stanford business school, probably because I was literally captain of the hot mess express in undergrad. And they were like, we had enough. You do not need to come back here. (laughs) Uh, But I went to Harvard business school, which is a very different school. Stanford leads the way when it comes to this interpersonal dynamics, ideology And Harvard is is trying to embed it, but Harvard has this sort of like old school business uh, mentality that it's still slowly evolving. Best two years uh, educationally I've ever experienced. Some of the most brilliant minds, you know, in and around me in class and most importantly in front uh, as professors. But it was really tough for me. I grew up super, super low income and there was something about Harvard that felt very like... You said, you know, banking consulting, money money money, whose parents were were rich from being the heir to whatever and there were even like secret exclusive like societies and parties and I was never invited to any of them and I always felt like it was because I didn't have like an interesting enough, you know, I wasn't as socially valuable because of my pedigree or whatever, but after talking to Jake about his business school experience, I've totally reworked it in my head and understand that yet again, I was getting in my own way. I was assuming that all of these other people were only interested in rich people things, but that made me have a very limited experience with the two years, and I regret that because I, I you know, I could have had an even better, uh, you know, personal growth experience if I was a little less afraid of that culture. That said, you know, as a marginalized person, like you know, feeling like I identify with low-income communities, it was hard, and I was angry, and I would like yell at my friends when they didn't understand me and they would make jokes about how I keep bringing up that I grew up poor. And so it's, it's problematic. Any place where there's privilege is problematic by definition, but business schools aren't evil. Harvard Business School and Stanford Business School are amazing institutions. They teach you so much about how to just like shed your insecurity and just go out there and do whatever you want to do. And I'll forever be grateful for it.
2: Hi guys, I'm Heather Thompson of in my heart podcast in my heart started with the concept of conversations with friends experts learning more encouraging independent thinking and digging deeper into topics to inspire new perspectives my vision and mantra for life is finding my freedoms and following what drives my light, energy and happiness and allows me to shine i really want that for you too Please join me each week as I speak to old friends and new about all of the things in my heart, our experiences, and how we find our freedoms together. New episodes come out weekly every Tuesday, wherever you stream your podcast, See you then.
1: Before we get to, uh, and we wrap up, because we know we've had you guys for about an hour, and you know this is a really good podcast, I think, for anyone to listen to, but let alone certainly queer business owners for sure. If Before we get to the game, could you each just give maybe like a one sentence advice to maybe the younger generation out there who maybe are queer, who want to start a business, things that they could have done better, maybe mistakes that you guys made? Just one piece from each of you. Uh, Jake, you can go first.
0: Yeah, what I would say is... Starting a business is really hard, but you have already done something really hard, and they're similar things, right? What you what you did in in coming out as a gay person or a queer person is you 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 were willing to accept sort of potentially risky short term pain for what you believe to be true is like the life you wanted to live, the happiness you you expected to come from that, right? That long term payoff. And that's what it, a business, starting a business is about. Like it is going to be really risky and scary and hard in the beginning, but you're doing it because it's going to make you happy because it's going to fulfill you because there's something there at the end that makes it worthwhile. And like, just remember that you've done something even harder already. And hopefully that will like, guide you to make the jump because I, I like, can't recommend it more.
3: Well said. And you, Luke. First question. Are you afraid of failure? And if the answer is yes do not start a business, period. <laughs> you will literally fail so many times and you just have to embrace it and be okay with it. And like Jake said, your business is not your identity. If you're able to go through the process of like, you know, coming out as a queer person, a hundred times harder, fully agree. And if you can understand that your business is something that is your baby, it requires 150% of your time, and that you will constantly stumble and fail, and you're not afraid, and you still want to raise that baby into a full-fledged adult, a functioning adult, then you should do it because it is life's greatest experience. And so long as you don't tie your identity up in the fear of entrepreneurial failure, you stand a chance at actually making it.
1: Well, I said, love that. both of you. This is a perfect sequitur into our completely nonsense, bullshitty game. We call scissor me this, you know, it's, it's just queer
2: nonsense, rapid fire. There's no right or wrong answer. Uh, Liz tee it up for the boys. Would you? Okay. This isn't even necessarily queer, but just out of curiosity, what was the last show that either one of you binged?
0: Ooh, I just finished the morning show.
2: The morning <laughs> show. Okay, we have to. We can have a. We can split a can and talk about that at some yeah, point. Morning show. What hey
3: about Luke? you, Luke? I, I, I said RuPaul's Drag Race, but I literally only watch that show. I've watched every season, maybe, probably five times at this point. And uh, every night before I go to bed, there's this guy who does mashups of RuPaul's Drag Race episodes that are called RuCaps. And I'm now deep into like digitally altered episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race, and it's the only media that I consume.
1: Who do you want to win? Because right now I'm for Rosé and I'm for Simone because Simone is everything. Simone. And I tell this, to I know Simone. I want Simone, but like when Rosé's a New Yorker,
3: Simone, Simone literally loves can? posted about can and I almost fainted. Simone is like the fiercest of all the drag queens right now. That okay. do rag train was. Looked at, oh, yeah, yeah. And it was grapefruit rosemary colors, which is our brand colors. Yeah, we're, we're team Simone over here. Simone's going to crush it. So if someone goes, Darren, okay.
2: Darren has finally come on board to RuPaul's Drag Race and we we've had Bob, the drag queen, I Shangela. We've had I so many people obsessed. on the show and we right. finally
1: and have Darren on the team. And I can't stop saying Tinta burnt her from this season. I keep Tinta saying it to my girlfriend, it. Tinta burnt and so much so that we're naming our next animal Tinta, but that's beside the point. Okay. Would you rather smoke weed with Snoop Dogg or Willie Nelson?
0: Ooh, I'd have to say Willie Nelson. Just, you know, my, my Colorado country roots.
3: Fair enough. Uh, neither. I would be so afraid that I would, <laughs> I would pick the third option and I would just kill myself. No, no, I, I like <laughs> respect both of them, but like just that's some heavy, some heavy weed smoking. I yeah, can't you do. couldn't
2: hang. Okay, wait, I'm going to piggyback on that. Who is the most famous? You guys have incredible people, investors. Gwyneth Paltrow, who we didn't even mention. Baron Davis, like crazy yeah. investors. Who is the most famous person either of you two have smoked with, if you smoke, because we don't want to assume, or had a can with?
3: Ooh. Does over does over Facetime count?
1: That counts because yes. we're in, counts. we're in quarantine. That counts. <laughs>
3: I, I have I've digitally enjoyed a can with Darren Chris, who is uh um, awesome and yeah. so funny and so smart. Okay, yeah. Jake,
2: what about you? Oh, no, Jake. no, 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 wait,
3: wait, no, I had dinner with Rebel Wilson and we drank roadies in yeah, uh, that's, that's Rebel Oh, that's sick. Dinner. It was oh my God, it was one. the wildest experience of my life. I was just sitting there, I was like, Is this even happening? Like, what do I, I what? That's <laughs> good amazing. One.
2: Jake Okay, Jake, what about you?
0: I at one point when I was working with Maggie Eposito, David Crosby from Crosby sells National. I State love
2: Classic. him. CSNY. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You're my was man. Amazing. I was like, I was, I couldn't believe it. And we like started smoking. I was like, oh my God, this is like the coolest cannabis Wait, moment. Can ever.
2: I not, I That's don't sick. mean to do this and I don't mean to drop this like Liz, it's hot, stop. but I have to. Yeah. At Robin Williams Thanksgiving, I would say 18 years ago, I smoked with David Crosby. Outside. Were you nine years old? No, I'm old. I'm I'm 30, almost 36. I was a teenager. Wow.
3: wow. Yeah, there you I'm sorry. There you go. I don't I lo-
2: overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, so. And I was like this. Is, and I, we were like secretly smoking. And he came out and was like, are you guys smoking weed? And I thought I was going to get in so much trouble. I'm sorry. Is that that's your most famous good.
1: person you've ever smoked with Liz?
2: Yes. Yes. That's pretty good. What's
1: What's your favorite? I mean, I mean, I work for a famous person who I've smoked with thousands of times, but outside of Andy, I would probably say Sarah Silverman. Uh, oh, that's a good that's one. That's got to count. That's a good right? one. Great that's got to yeah. count. He was in LA, so it counts.
3: Have you ever He's read her um, her book? I haven't. Should I? My life philosophy is based on Sarah Silverman's like one chapter in her book. She says, make it a treat for all of your vices. And it's like influence how we market can. it's like. You know, make it occasional, make it controllable and approachable. She's brilliant. She's done so many amazing things to destigmatize cannabis.
1: I fucking love her. Okay, this, guys, this is going to tap into your intellectual side. I know we got a couple Ivy Leaguers here. Would you rather have three hands or three feet? Interesting.
0: (laughs) Where does does the third one go? Can you choose? That's
1: not for me to determine. It just Mm. that you have three feet or three hands, unclear of placement on body.
0: I feel like I would do a third hand just because I fingers feel more functional to me than than toes. You're like,
1: talking to a lesbian here, so I would agree with you on that one. Oh my uh, God,
2: Darren! <laughs> People
3: with foot fetishes, like you know,
1: they do. But hands are easier yeah. to uh, manipulate, if you will. Yes,
3: uh, I would also say third hand, and I would put it on my back as a flipper.
2: <laughs> oh. So I love you boys. Okay, keep going, Liz. We got a couple more for you guys. I don't know. I thought that was such a good one to end on, <laughs> end on but I Whoa. guess I guess Did I you? will. I'm going to try a San Francisco one that might not land, but I'm going to try it. The End Up or oh. Badlands?
3: It uh, d- depends. Is it 2015 or is it today? Yeah. I mean,
2: it's Ooh. obviously, tw- it's not even 2015. I think we're more talking like, 2010 like
3: what oh, yeah 2010 badlands, yes. badlands, badlands 2010 the music was <laughs> lit they were playing like <laughs> oh, um or maybe no that was 2012 or something it, it was um we call it sadlands now because it just is like a memory of what of we course it's a
2: memory of the of what it was i know badlands so for the listeners and for darren badlands is like one of the most OG like n- gay nightclubs right on the Castro and the gotcha. end up is a place that is ooh, I don't know if I'm not describing this right boys please jump in it is like dark 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 but fun <laughs> weird world that you will end up at at one point in your life you might be on crystal math you might you might be on your All way right, to Tina. jail. All right, Tina. Um, okay. It is it is a weird, dark, but like fun rite of passage in San Francisco. Yeah,
1: yeah, think,
3: on yeah well, <laughs> you're ending life. up somewhere. Think- you're ending up here. It's a living manifestation of a, it, it is what a K-hole looks like. <laughs> <laughs> so far. Um, and if, uh-huh. if you want to go next level, end up, there's an end up in London and it's called Egg just EGG and it like opens at 6am and it goes till like noon and like it is worse than the end up. It's it's
2: honestly, after a year of quarantine, I fuck with an egg. I fuck with egg. I fuck with the end up. I'll go wherever you're ready. (laughs) You're like,
1: I will party at 8am motherfucker. Give me some can. Okay. Last one. (laughs) And this is obviously not a, not a perfect situation, but would you rather find your dream job or find true love if you can't have both? look at
3: luke's face
1: (laughs) luke's like i found my true love and i have my dream job
3: what do you care about more luke but it's jake and i both have our dream jobs like it's it's we have our dream jobs and you know like we're both in really committed relationships and it's hard i i for me i think it's it's true love it's it's elusive it's uh that's the that's the holy grail is true love
0: a dream yeah. job
1: isn't going to wipe your ass when, you, when you're when you incontinent, when you're 85, you know what I mean? So that's a fair point. What about you, Jake?
0: Yeah, I, I think I agree. I I like have a different spin on it, which is maybe a little more boring. But like I, we struggle with this all the time. Like Luke said, we both are in relationships and have this job. And it's not even a job really, right? Like I think that's part of why I would vote true love because jobs, I don't like jobs. Jobs seem like the thing I'd left to do this. But I'm constantly battling this like, Work is always more urgent. It doesn't mean it's more important, right? But it's always more urgent. And it's a really tough thing to communicate to, to a, a, a partner because it feels like you're prioritizing the job over, over love. But it, that's not it. It's just that what's so amazing about like true love is that provides the support, the foundation on which you can do something like start a company or, or, or whatever it is your dream job looks like. Right. And, and because it's there and because it's important, like you don't have to run to it every single time. Right. But your job you kind of do. And, and so I don't know, that's why I would, I would, I pick true love because it, it really is the, it's the foundation on which everything else is built.
1: I love I'm that. in love, Liz. I don't know about you. I might have gone a little bit straight for these boys, just a touch. What about you? Well, I was bit. trying
2: to I was trying to control myself, but if you guys are in the market for a child.
1: <laughs> oh, no. I, all right, end the podcast now. This is her your weekly sperm donor ask uh, market? Go.
2: it's not weekly, it's specific, Darren. I don't ask
1: <laughs> everyone for sperm. You don't but ask your female handsome guests, men, that's true. Yes, yes, I know. absolutely. Looking, I don't I'm
3: looking forward to when we all hang out in, in LA and we can properly yes. grill you uh, on on your stories.
1: Please, we would love it. Uh and before we let you guys go, let everyone know where they can find can look up can find you. Give us the the promo stuff right now. This is a good opportunity too.
3: Activating listen to Liz um on (laughs) (laughs) chop.drinkcan.com.
0: Yeah, chop.drinkcan.com. Uh also on Instagram at drinkcan two ends.
3: Two ends for two ends. It's a fun, it's a fun Instagram page. Brands are boring to follow. Typically, we're a friend not a brand we just like make weird jokes all the time and and you know sometimes they land sometimes they don't but it's always a good time
2: i can attest to that i can attest to that the social media manager whoever's in the social was having a lot of fun with me in the dms from can the other day you can find darren and i at siat podcast on twitter and instagram darren is carpe darren i'm listening to liz it was a pleasure pleasure we love you guys I cannot wait to hang out. I love what you're doing. Darren, we'll get you some goddamn can. Don't worry Mm -hmm. about it. Come to LA. Come visit. And thank you guys so much for your time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We enjoyed it. Bye. Scissoring Isn't a Thing is a production of Embassy Row. Our executive producer is Sarni Rogers. This episode was produced by Alexa Machia and Anna Marie Johnson. The show is edited by Maureen Begus. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SIAT Podcast. See you next Tuesday.